Hello, everyone. This is uh, Stavros Yanuka welcoming you back for another episode of Wise Words. Our guest today is Luca Parry, CEO of the Learning Future Organization. A former teacher who became a principal at the age of 27 uh, and a speaker of five languages, Luca has trained tens of thousands of educators and executives from around the world on leadership and the importance of social and emotional learning. The latter was very much the focus of our discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Luca Parry, welcome to Wise Words. Thank you very much. Luca, do you want to just spend a little bit of time introducing yourself to, to our listeners? Some key highlights, your career and, and uh, what keeps you busy? Uh, I don't days? know about highlights. Stavros, but yeah, absolutely. I'd love to share a little bit of my journey. I'm an Australian. I Both my parents were born overseas and early on in my life, in fact, through a lot of travel that I did as a young man, I realized really the power that education can have. And so I chose to study education to follow in my mother's footsteps. And she's a wonderful educator. And uh, I returned back to Australia after a couple of years overseas and became a languages teacher. Funnily enough, uh, as an 18-year-old man, I spoke only English. I was monolingual, and since then, I've learned four additional languages. Modern wow. Greek, which is my, my mother's ancestry, Spanish oh, right. <laughs> in, in uh, South America. Uh, and then also, I was, I was very lucky to, to take my t- a teaching position. My first teaching job was in one of the most remote communities in Australia. Instead of traveling 15 minutes from my house here in Adelaide, it was a 15-hour drive in a very remote part of the central desert of Australia, red dirt country, we would say here in Australia. And that's where I cut my teeth as a teacher, trying to learn the kind of science and art of teaching. Um, I became a young principal at age 27. Then I moved into policy and I think quickly realized that it wasn't the time for me to be doing policy work. I'm far more a fieldwork kind of educator. And then I moved interstate to join a a teaching company called Education Changemakers and spent four years helping to grow that work into kind of a global teacher training innovation organization. And for the last six months, I've really been exploring the field of social emotional learning in particular through a new company that I've set up called The Learning Future. And really, it's very simple. We want to back the fantastic educators to shift really the way that they do business every single day and to enable a a world of thriving learners, knowing that the world is shifting at the fastest rate uh, in human history. So lots of challenges, but certainly lots of opportunities. Great. Well, listen, after, after the podcast, I need to get some tips from you on, on learning Greek as an adult, because I want to get, I want to get my son, uh, reconnect with the language. So he, he grew up English. So I need to get some tips from you on how to, how to do that. Yeah, definitely. But let's, let's just, I mean, you were a principal at 27. That's just that's incredibly, uh, impressive. Um, was that in the, in the public system or was that in, in a private setting? Yeah, it was in the public system. It was a, a wonderful school, highly complex in many ways. Uh, we had 100 students from birth to year 12 and into a pathway. And the vast majority of those students were English as an additional language or dialect because this was an Aboriginal and remains an Aboriginal community where I was always a visitor on Aboriginal land. So I learned a huge amount through that process and hopefully I contributed as well. We were very good at building an innovative culture. And really one of the main things that I realized two things through that process. Number one is that mass schooling in many ways is not fit for purpose anymore. And the second is that we are missing out on so much of the human development by the additional pressures that we put on educators, on administrators. And if we can really shift the kind of priority set and the measurement set in particular, so that we are creating these individuals that need lifelong, life-wide learners 
rather yeah. than just kind of you know, bookcases of knowledge, um, then we're really empowering them on their future journey as we step into this kind of volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world, which yeah. is the world of the future. Yeah. Say, say a little bit about that shift because we're going to get into social and emotional learning as as a sort of topic for our, for our discussion. And I know that's something that you, you spent a lot of time thinking about. So talk a little bit about, you know, what, what kind of shift you, you would like to see in, in education in terms, of, in, in terms of the sorts of challenges that you're talking about. I think if you ask, and I have done this, of course, if you ask a room of 300 principals and you say, who here in this room thinks that the sole purpose of education is to prepare young people for a job? Not one hand will go up. Yeah. And so I think what we need to do is, is go beyond the, the economic argument that schools are factories for the workforce, yeah. because that's not solely the case. The idea is how can we, we shift kind of the way that these systems work? And in many ways, using the industrial metaphor is, is a powerful one. And so Ken Robertson did this very well in his TED Talk, Why Schools Kill Creativity, some 10 years ago. We really just just said, if you look at a school today, really it has all these. It looks very much like a factory, it has bells and whistles and classrooms, and we batch students by age, not by stage. So that's kind of the remaining challenges for a lot of educators. Thankfully, there are thousands of remarkable examples out there of schools that have moved beyond that industrial into the post-industrial type of education, and it's really. I try to define the difference between schooling and education. Education goes back, as you would very well know, Savros, you know, thousands of years back to kind of Plato's Academy and before and the Eastern traditions and beyond. And yet mass, mass schooling, I think, really is the challenge for us because when you've got this high level of complexity, often what we do is we standardize, we don't personalize. And so that shift in, in treating every single learner as the individual that they are and also how they connect to the broader group. That's the kind of high-level challenge that every teacher and every principal and every system leader uh, and every politician, frankly, is also struggling with. How can we create a world where every single person gets exactly what they need at that point in time so that they can accelerate their learning moving forward? Because we know that education is the engine room of prosperity for communities and for countries. Yeah. Increasingly, it's a renewable engine room, which is great. But yeah. of course, in, in this fourth industrial revolution, if you learn how to learn, that's a huge enabler for you moving forward. You know, knowing that you're going to have likely 17 different jobs in five different industries. If we look at some of the research by the Foundation for Young Australians, for example, the idea of a job for life, broadly speaking, is already gone. And many yeah. millennials and, and now the, the digital natives coming through, that's, that's the reality and they understand that. And so how can we transfer our learning into new roles and into new spaces, into new contexts? And that's, I think, the promise that social emotional learning, soft skills, 21st century capabilities, which by the way, are all talking about the same set of human capabilities, these yeah. key skills that make us who we are, if character education, et cetera. That's really why I think they can become the centerpiece around which we put high quality content and, and some of the other pieces as, as people move forward into their workforce and into society. So, so let's, let's, let's get into that a little bit. So what, what do you mean when you talk about social and emotional learning, let's let's define it. Maybe I would I would define social emotional learning as key human capabilities that allow individuals to manage their emotions, to work successfully with others, to feel and show empathy, develop those positive relationships, and ultimately achieve their goals. And this learning isn't just about you know an individual. It's not just about you know we have an individual, a child, or an adult learner that now feels well. It's also how we can create really positive communities and societies and economies. 
not least of all in the fragmenting world that we look around in the political space or, you know, post-Brexit and all these other kind of big political uh, phenomena. The idea is how can we really take the perspective of another person? How can we regulate our own emotions and our own thoughts and our own behaviours so that we can become the person that we want to become and make a positive impact in the world? So that's really how I define SEL um, as a field. And it's, it's been around for really two and a half decades, almost, almost 30 years. And there's some wonderful organizations out there doing this work. So if we, if we unpack that a little bit, really, it's about, number one, understanding yourself, right? What, what drives you? What, as you say, your, you know, what, what influences and impacts your emotional state, uh, your motivations, mm-hmm. understanding the way that you interact with others and how you can get the best out of those, uh, those interactions, both for yourself but also for the uh, for the folks that you are engaged Absolutely. with, and then and then maybe there's a third dimension, which is sort of understanding your place in the broader broader environment, the world, and what impact you know your actions, your decisions is. Would that be a good good summary of? Absolutely, yeah. that's a great that's a great summary. I mean, one of the challenges is we have so many different frameworks already in this field, yeah. and even the language we use is so different. So. When we're in the business world, we talk about soft skills. Soft skills are social and emotional skills, broadly speaking. Uh, the World Economic Forum talks about 21st century capabilities, for example. Uh, UNICEF talks about transversal skills or life skills. So yeah. we're all kind of talking about the same thing, but that fragmentation of language can be problematic because everyone then might think these are different elements. As you say, really, and, and looking at the Collaborative for Academic Social Emotional Learning, CASEL, which is a great organization in the United States, that builds the ecosystem in SEL, they would say there's five, the big five, self-awareness, self-management. So that's ideas of me as a human, as an individual. Mm-hmm. And there's social awareness and relationship skills, which is kind yeah. of outward focus. And then there's the responsible decision-making that's built into that. And they yeah. call them the big five. And that's just one example of a great framework that we can use in education to try yeah. to help focus on the work and on the development of skills that we know matter. And, and, you know, I mean, it seems to me that that just, you know, cuts across both time and place in the sense that I, I don't see anything 21st century about that. I mean, that that's, <laughs> there's a, you know, time-honored tradition that goes back, as you say, you know, thousands of years where, you know, people have been grappling with these, with, with these issues, right? How do you achieve mastery over your own emotional state? And, and again, you know, how do you connect in the best possible way with other other people in the world around you. But why, why do you feel that it's, I mean, we, we sort of touched a little on this, but why do you feel that it's of particular importance and relevance now? Even though it's, you know, uh, the theories and the ideas uh, and even the practice has been around for, for a very long time. It's a great question. I just think we are at a particular tipping point right now in terms of human progress and human development. We have developed all these existential risks. We've also, you know, the world in many ways is better than it's ever been before on on a lot of metrics. But my short answer is due to the power of the law of accelerating returns. So the idea that technology now is changing the world faster than ever before. This guy, you can talk about Gordon Moore, for example, who's co-founder of a small company called Intel. And Mm -hmm. he realized this early on in the development of computational power, that every 18 months to two years, they were seeing a doubling of computational power. Yeah. The price point remained the same. And the reason that matters for us in education, in fact, it matters for everybody in the world, is because that's been driving what we call exponential technologies and their emergence. And so things like artificial intelligence is only possible today because of that law. 
So the crazy thing is, if you think about this law, and, and, and as human beings, our psychology is, is primed for linear thinking, not for exponential thinking, is that we will see yeah. a doubling in the computational power in the next two years, which means that it's the same amount of computational growth we've seen in all of human history up to this point. And our brains are just not really equipped to deal with that kind of change. But so this is why we're seeing these huge advances, you know, massive leaps forward and then they convert. So then you have a robot that's autonomous and then you put AI into the robot. And all of a sudden those converging technologies start to make really significant shifts in healthcare and energy, in in military, um, in education, in learning sciences, in all these different fields. And so that's why I think focusing on human skills matters more than ever before. Because if we look at the growth of jobs as well, anything that's routine in a manual sense has become automated over time. So the factories of old uh, are now largely all done robotically. But what's the new thing is that the the blue collar workforce has understood automation for some time. It's the white collar workforce that now is being challenged by it. So the idea of studying accounting, a lot of the predictions say that accounting is we've got a ninety nine percent chance of being automated within the next twenty years. We're already seeing AI lawyers like Ross, for example which is one brand of AI lawyer that can search for precedent and do work in seconds that it takes a paralegal or an associate hours to do. And so that's why we're seeing this challenge. And so the idea here is we can't compete against this narrow intelligence. What we have as humans is a general intelligence, which is far superior at the moment to AI. Uh, So that's what we should be leaning forward into, the idea of our creativity, our innovation, what's our, our ability to communicate, to connect, to compel others. All of those sit within this particular field. So I think that's why this matters more than ever. And that is why I think right now is the moment to try to see some really significant global shifts in this work. Yeah, so, so if, I can, you know, if I can sort of put in a little plug for uh, WISE 2019, which uh, I, I hope you will, you will be attending, it really is about reconnecting with, with this idea of, of what it means to be human being and then unpacking the distinctive elements of that and working on... I don't want to say perfecting them, but on on continuously improving them. Yeah, the the idea that I mean, the idea of unlearning and relearning is more crucial now than it was before. Because there was a time where we would learn to work, and then you'd go to work and you would do some small upskilling. Well, again, all the predictions from the World Economic Forum to the Future for the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford they said we're going to have to learn more and more while we're on the job. So the idea of learning to work will shift to become working while learning. And so that's a really significant shift. So unlearning, relearning, applying yourself, that is, that's already the emergent world. And it's just going to become more distributed over time. Um, yeah. I really like this idea, and you might have heard this as well, Stavros, the idea, you know, Tony, Tony Wagner is the, the one that I attribute this to, who was innovator in residence at Harvard. But he said, it's not just about what you know, it's about what you do with what you know. And so yeah. I think we can all agree with that sentiment today. But I, I want to add a deeper level to that. And that's, it's not just about what you know, or even what you do with what you know, but it's who you are. And that idea of the identity or the character of mm-hmm. what, what's my kind of agency to, to try to tackle some of the problems in my community or in my life or in my society. I think that idea of, of identity is one that we've been missing a little bit in education and in some ways a lot in some sectors and some systems. And that's largely due to the idea of trying to measure everybody. And it's easy to measure you know, knowledge, it's very difficult to measure, you know, your empathy or your, your agency, your passion, the way that we, we can create powerful relationships. Those are far more difficult to measure from a, psychometric, a psychometric perspective. So that's, I think, one of the challenges. 
say, say a little bit more about this idea of identity because I, I find that I find that intriguing because when most people hear identity, they will tend to look for sort of cultural, religious, or kind of national anchors. And, you know, to a certain extent, global education has been, I don't want to say trying to move away from that, but it, it's been trying to argue that, look, there's, you know, there there are, of course, cultural markers that, that, that are unique to uh, to different you know groups of people, but then there's also this 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 whole other layer of uh, commonality that we have, and mm. that really you know if we're going to make progress, we need to tap into the commonality much more. That you know we should you know preserve cultural distinctiveness, but really it's about tapping into the commonality. So what what do you mean when you talk about identity? That it's it's about who you are. Uh, and that the sort of the knowledge and what you do with that knowledge is really rooted in your identity. It's just a fascinating conversation, this point. I, I think it starts with self-awareness. So who am I? How do I see myself? And then from that comes self-concept, which is this is the kind of person I am. This is how I might interact. From that, mm-hmm. we can have things like self-esteem and self-confidence. And yeah. I think all of that, all of those things are really important because... When we don't know who we are, I think we search aimlessly for that. And I mean, great education that has, that it has existed for a long time and great teaching has always been around. A great teacher enables you to discover. It's almost an inward inquiry as well as an outward exploration. And I think that that's something that we can, we can really focus increasingly on in education. The idea of what's my character? So a great example tangibly is, is called the values in action survey or, or questionnaire. And what yeah. they have there, are all these different character strengths, which basically, and, and so you can go through and do this 140 item you know, test basically online. It's free at viacharacter.org. And then you get your results. And what that shows you is, well, here are my character strengths. Here are the top five strengths that I use in my interactions with others, in my, just my day-to-day life. Yeah. And enabling people with the language, the vocabulary, to start to talk about themselves from that perspective, that's a really tangible way to have a strengths-based conversation for people to overcome the negativity bias that is inherent in human psychology. Because we know that negative, negative emotions and memories are three to five times more powerful than positive ones. So yeah. partially it's about trying to reframe that at the same time. There's a great line by Walt Whitman. He says, I am large, I contain multitudes. So to your question, the idea is not saying, well, I mean, I'm an Australian, but I'm also of Greek ancestry. I'm also of Welsh ancestry. I'm also multilingual. I'm also part of the educated community. I'm an entrepreneur. So being able to actually associate, yeah. find common ground, as you say, is crucial in today's world, which is more connected than ever before. And in some ways becoming more isolated than ever before. I mean, we haven't even we haven't even covered the challenge of mental health, um, but if you look at the World Health Organization, you know the global body, yeah. they say that the biggest health burden by 2025 will be mental health. It'll be anxiety, depression, you know, suicide. We have a really an incredibly high rate of suicide here in Australia, where it's the largest cause of of death for for Australians aged between 14 and 44. And so how do we overcome these really significant challenges? Well, of course, education needs to play a role, but we can't just ask teachers to do more than they already do. They're already overwhelmed doing their incredibly important work. So it's about supporting systemic shifts over time where educators and the young people that they serve actually feel like I'm learning the knowledge 
I can see my skills being developed and also my dispositions, my character. I'm increasingly knowing the person that I am and the person I want to continue to become. I mean, I think you, you've touched on, well, many sort of important ideas there, but I think one that I, I take away from, from this exchange is, is the idea of, of, of having a number of different you know, identities that, that one can cultivate and build on over, over a lifetime. And essentially, and again, this, this didn't come up directly, but I think you, you implied that, that these identities are quite, quite fluid and, and changeable. That you, you know, you can sort of reinvent yourself. You can, you know, in a sense, choose to develop certain, certain strengths over others. You know, there, there's, there's far more malleability in, in this notion of identity than I think we're, you know, we're sometimes willing to acknowledge. Absolutely. And yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I think we need to do two things. And one is to celebrate diversity, knowing that there are many historical cases. Australia has its own history with first Australians here, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. How can we celebrate diversity and at the same time, find commonality, find common ground? The idea of what connects us ultimately as human beings. And I think where we have people with a strong sense of self and they don't feel challenged by that, there's a self-concept that's high. That means that they can come and kind of, in any interaction, they don't feel threatened by that particular interaction because the other person is displaying, you know, it's creating psychological safety, for example, connectedness, you know, the great outcomes from developing social emotional skills. You know, we, every, every cost-benefit analysis shows the really significant impact that when we invest early in these particular skills in empathy, perspective, taking self-awareness, responsible decision-making, etc., it just has really significant positive impacts. And that's not just for the individual, but that's also for the collective. So I think this, I think you're the, what we're discussing here, Stafford, I think is this tension between the individual and the collective. And it's one that yeah. societies have tackled for a long time. And in some ways we're seeing it break down where we're seeing kind of new, new tribes emerging, this new kind of new tribalism. How how can we get back to kind of the idea of a global human movement where we all want a world that is better than the world we have today? That's an enormous question. And I think social emotional learning and the development of it well, systemically and systematically, is a really powerful tool that, that we can use in, in education systems globally. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that at, at a minimum, what it does is is make you, you know, make make you aware that the same drivers that shape your persona and and the way that you look at the world, you know, are are also at play in in other people, even if you know the outcomes might be different. You know, different persona, different different view of the world. The key drivers, the elements, you know, the underlying, if you will, you know, physics, chemistry, and biology is, you know, is is the same. And you know, and and, and that can, I, I think, you know, a good understanding of that can form the basis, if you will, of of at least some sort of common common ground. I mean, we all have fears, we all have hopes, dreams, and and you know, again, that. If we can sort of build a little bit on that, I think that's sort of a good, you know, a good, a good starting point. But t- tell me, I mean, do you, are you aware of, you know, examples of good social emotional learning being applied in, in a classroom setting? Do you, do you have, you know, how, how does, you know, an educator go about introducing some of these ideas into their, uh, into their classroom? There's lots of ways to think about this. Um, but I do want to dispel a couple of myths. One is that, to do SEL well, you just bring in a program or a lesson and then you tick off, I've taught SEL. Yes. 
uh, for yeah. the week or for, for the unit, whatever the case might be. Yeah. It's actually about embedding it. I mean, high quality academic, social, emotional learning really is the fabric of what education is, what empowering education is. Yeah. So in every, every time we're talking about an academic skill, there is always the opportunity to talk about the social and the emotional constructs that might relate to that. Self-regulation is a really good point. So we talk about goal setting, for example. Self-regulation is, it has a social element, it has an emotional element, and it also has an academic element, a cognitive element. And so whenever we're doing goal setting, that's actually an opportunity to talk really explicitly about some of those skills. SEL can, we can start really small. Um, there's some wonderful work done by Professor Stephanie Jones from the Easel Lab at Harvard University, and it's called Kernels of Practice. So it's SEL kernels. So for example, if you're a teacher in a classroom somewhere in the world and SEL is new for you, you can effectively go on and Google kernels practice Stephanie Jones. And there are 25 evidence-based practices. And some of them are as simple as, okay, well, let's everyone sit down and in the transition time, let's take 60 seconds just to do a body scan. That's just a bit, that's appropriate perception. It's trying to activate the relaxation response of the body called the parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, yeah. And if we can do this, then of course, what we're priming learners, adults and, and children, by the way, to actually be more prepared to learn. So we can start with those small kind of kernels of practice, but ultimately what we want to build up to is a fully embedded social and, and emotional learning program throughout the entire school. One of the best examples of work I've seen on this it comes from Yale at the Center for Emotional Intelligence. And of course, EI was made famous by Daniel Golden's book some mm-hmm. decades ago, um, and Mark Brackett, who's the the, found, the founding director there, has this wonderful approach called Ruler. And it's about emotional intelligence, emotional regulation. So yeah. Ruler is the acronym. It's how can we recognize emotion? Okay, how, how do I feel right now? Can I understand why I'm feeling that way? Cool. Can I label it? Well, we need there to be vocabulary and have a wonderful vocabulary thing called the mood meter, which enables young people to articulate how they feel. Can we express it in an appropriate way? And then ultimately, can we regulate it? And so when you see people that are really gritty or people that are resilient, people that can kind of persevere, usually they have a really high level of emotional regulation because that can keep you focused. You know, if I get frustrated as a, as a teacher, I was going to say teacher in a classroom, that's true. That could be true too. But as a learner in a classroom or as an employee in an office, how can I regulate my emotions to stay on task or to, to persevere through to try to complete whatever the project might be? Uh, so that's a really great example, um, the ruler method, yeah. for trying to teach explicitly how we can utilize some of our human capabilities in a more powerful way. Yeah. So it's not, about, it's not that we don't have these skills um, you know, ready to be developed. It's just that sometimes we focus on the kind of memorization and some of those lower level skills rather than going into the, the really important stuff um, yeah. around the social emotional. I, mean, I hear what you're saying about, about embedding, embedding social and emotional learning into, into sort of daily, daily routine of, uh, of a classroom. Mm-hmm. I, and that, that tends to be, you know, always the, the sort of answer when, you know, when, when we're trying to introduce, you know, a new, a new set of skills. And when we talk about creativity or we talk about, you know, communication, most schools will tell you, yeah, yeah, we're doing that. We're embedding it in, you know, in our sort of, um, uh, lesson plans for, for the different subjects. I, I'm a little bit skeptical when I hear that because that sort of sounds to me 
I mean, I hear what you're saying, and, it, and, and what you're saying is great, mm-hmm. but I just I, I worry that a lot of school systems will kind of use this as a as a bit of a cop out to say, yeah, yeah, we're embedding, you know, because we do, you know, we do the the you know this, body check, and we do. Yeah, I, I do. I do feel like like with any skill, there is a sort of element of of, of practice and mastery that needs to come with it, and so. Mm-hmm. I would still argue that that we might need a couple of programs that specifically focus you on some of the techniques. And again, I just you know love to sort of get your reaction and if you've seen any any such programs being being applied successfully anywhere. You raise a great point. And what I would say is that high quality practice in this space is both explicit and embedded which means, yes, we have the program that's empirically validated. It's evidence-based. We know that it works. And we run that program in our school. Maybe it's coming in externally. Maybe it's being run internally, whatever the case might be. Um, But at the same time, the danger with doing that is that we go, well, we have the program. So then we don't bring it across. So so it's not an either-or proposition. So I think we actually, um, we agree on this. It's actually, you can do it explicitly and then also try to bring across that learning into all the other learning areas. Uh, you know, as a languages teacher, languages, funnily enough, are one of the best curriculum areas to bring in social emotional learning because it's all about perspective taking. It's all about stepping into the shoes of somebody else and looking back at your own culture, your own language, your own grammar mm-hmm. sometimes, all those particular elements. So I, that's the first thing I'd say is that we, we do want there to be explicit instruction in these elements, um, but we also want them to become embedded. So what this looks like in a school, for example, um, some schools that I work with, uh, they will have a capability session before they do curriculum. So what they do is they'll say, okay, we're going to learn communication for 20 minutes. It's not linked to, you know, the the content standard or we're going to learn about, we're going to do self-awareness exercise for 20 minutes or whatever the case is. And then they, they, they kind of slip into bringing some of that learning into the content that they are also learning for that particular subject area. So that idea of linking those two things is really yeah. powerful because it's actually giving equal weight. Here's another great example. Uh, and there are so many of these um, all over the world. And this comes from New Delhi schools. They have 1.1 million students in the New Delhi school system, the public system. Yeah. And they have just launched what's called the happiness curriculum. And so this is an explicit program that every teacher is required to teach that actually looks at some of the elements around social and emotional learning. So how can we, yes, we're teaching the content, we're trying to teach the skills, but can we teach happiness or at least enable young people to increase their happiness through you know, gifting them these skills? Um, Portugal also brilliantly actually said, well, as teachers, we know that you're overloaded. You know, the curriculum is so full of all this stuff. Why don't we just remove 25% of the curriculum? And with that time, you can do what you think is required most. And of course, a lot of teachers felt completely liberated and said, well, actually, what are we going to do with this 25% now that we have? And embedding social emotional learning um, or just running a specific program or creating their own program based on some of the evidence that they see is what's emerged in that space. And some of the work of the Gulbernican Foundation that's leading that innovative work is just wonderful to see. So it's enabling, I think, both programs to come in, but also to be developed um, in the schools and in the classrooms. Because if you look, if you walk into uh, a classroom, you'll be able to tell very quickly: is what's the is there a positive culture? Um, are, 
is there emotion? What are the walls? You know, what's the kind of environmental print saying? Uh, is there the vocabulary that we want young people to be using around their social and emotional needs? That, that's kind of really clear when you walk into a classroom. But we can't assume that it's going to take place because educators need support to change practice. And in some ways, they need to be liberated as well from the pressures of high stakes yeah. testing, uh, which I think, as, as you can imagine, is a, is a hallmark of the old mass schooling system. Yep. So that young people can actually self-assess, use what's called ipsative assessment. So how do I think I'm going? Uh, let's, do some, let's do some peer assessment rather than having to always know precisely what your knowledge might be on a particular content area. Um, yep. I think we can, we can say that uh, the one thing I'll say on this as well is that for a long time in the old system, I think, Stavros, we would have content and then we'd say, what skills might we teach from that content and what dispositions or character might be developed and then how might we do a project in the real world and so you know you, you create a poster or you write an essay um, yeah. or you give a speech whatever the case might be i i think in the emergent world of education in this learning future what we actually have is we say what is the challenge in the community or in the world what's the character that we want for our young people what's the graduate profile we want someone to be leaving our classroom our school with what skills do we want them to have and what high quality content supports that entire process so it's really by flipping the design yeah. of the way that we, tr we create teaching and learning yeah. i think it's one of the most powerful things that we can do and when teachers think of themselves as learning designers not just performers or presenters mm -hmm. that's when we can see some really powerful shifts be it with social emotional learning or any other kind of element you're, you're also Im implying and this is this is something that i'm quite passionate about you're also sort of implying almost like a, a sort of multidisciplinary approach to education rather than the sort of strict separation of, of disciplines that we have now. And it was interesting when you were talking about language and, and that language learning is, is a great vehicle for social and emotional learning. I, I, I feel the same way about, about literature, actually. But in mm. a sense, you know, you, de decoupling, decoupling it from the need, again, to sort of learn a different languages, which was, you know, different people have different capabilities there and and you know if you were lucky as i was enough to effectively grow up bilingual then that's fine you've got your two languages but then you know maybe you have difficulty acquiring a third but it, you know when you read when you read the literature of 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 different people that gives you a window into their uh their way of thinking and and you know for me it's it's kind of it's a form of empathy because you're putting you know the the author if they're a skilled author in particular will mm -hmm. essentially put you in into his or her shoes and you can see the world, you know, through, through their eyes. And, and, you know, again, it's the only, it's also the only demonstrable way of, of traveling through time that we, <laughs> that we have is to, is to read the accounts of, you know, of people from, um, you know, from, from the past or, or even projections into, into the future. Again, there's some, you know, great, great sci-fi that I'm a, a, I'm a fan of. And that, Again, if we were to, to sort of, you know, I could see how you can take, you know, take a literature course, mm. you know, even if, you know, I mean, I, I don't know why sci-fi can't qualify as literature, but anyway, or even a sci-fi and say, <laughs> okay, look, you know, let's, let's kind of unpack this, you know, from a sort of social, uh, emotional learning standpoint, right? What do we learn about the experience of these folks and, and, um, and how they dealt with different different situations so you know i mean i i totally totally buy buy into what you're what you're saying again do we you know we we have examples and i'm i'm sort of 
also addressing Basim here. What we should do after the podcast is when we when we post this up, we should we should get links to some of the great resources that you're you know you've been sharing on the during the interview, Luca, and, and get that sure. get that out to people. I know we we sort of in a sense counterposed social and emotional learning to the old sort of way of testing people. Now I'm going to ask a question, which is in a sense <laughs> going to go against that. That's fine. So is there a way for us to measure growth? I won't say test, but measure growth and sort of assess mastery in social and emotional learning. Is there, you know, are you aware of, or is that completely counterproductive? No, it is possible. And this is what we're seeing a lot of big testing organizations move into, I think quite pleasingly, frankly. The other thing is that thinking of social and emotional learning, and this is something I think it's really important to understand, is that academic learning and social emotional learning intricately connected. Just like if we think about the emotional area of the brain and the cognitive areas of the brain, they are overlapping all the time. And so the neuroscientists would say, well, actually, if you, if you don't have an emotional connection to content or to learning or to experience, actually, you're not going to get the maximum cognitive performance. And this is why when basically the argument for why when we're passionate about something, it will predict our performance because we'll work longer at it, we'll be more inspired by it. It's because we have a higher emotional connection. Mm. And so when we talk about social emotional learning, the reason that it's a focus now is I think it's become lost and there's been an, an unbalance um, between the academics on the one hand and the social emotional learning on the other hand. Was great learning combines all three elements. It's, it's not as we forget about academics. No, not at all. On the contrary, when we focus on social emotional learning, we see a boost in academic performance. And that's because we're seeing some of these key constructs like self-regulation, for example, uh, and emotional regulation that underpins that. They kind of help you to drive your academic performance. And so it's not an either-or proposition here. It's always a both-and proposition. So there's, there's a, a bunch of great research that's on the CASEL website, casel.org forward slash impact. And basically it shows that there's two decades of research that shows when we promote the social emotional learning, we also see boosts in the academic performance. So that's, that's a really key thing to, I think, acknowledge. So if you want to increase your academic performance, mm. bring in social emotional learning. I mean, yeah. Yeah. not that I, I think few people care about that as a sole outcome, because of course the, the SEL staff due to the, you know, from some of the conversations we've had already, are going to become increasingly more important because the knowledge aspects will shift in this kind of increasing exponential change that we're seeing driven by converging technologies. But if we've got those key learnings that we can transfer, that we can bring across, that we can bring in our empathy and our perspective taking, I think that can be really powerful. The other thing is around literature, which you brought up, Stavros. Yeah, you're spot on. Uh, I was listening to a podcast called Hidden Brain just the other day and they were, they were talking about how actors are actually have a very high level of empathy. And the reason for that mm. is that their entire training is having to step into the shoes of somebody yeah. else and try to portray that. And that's frankly what fiction does. We become the protagonists, you know, and we, we read their journey. And so we can kind of really step into, you know, cultural spaces or other identity spaces that would never be like, possible for us in our day-to-day -day lives. And that's why I think Having a people that read widely, I mean, having a really strong base of literature, I think is incredibly important for a great education because you get yeah. that kind of perspective on what it must feel like to be somebody else. And if, if we need anything in the modern world today, it's empathy. I yeah. think when we, when we know somebody, we connect with them as a human being, it changes our entire, it can change our entire belief system. Immigration is a really great example. So if you look at the Brexit result, for example, there's a, uh, almost perfect correlation between the number of immigrants in a particular 
and community and how likely people were to want to remain in the European Union. Yeah. I, if I wasn't living next to an immigrant and I didn't know them personally, well, I could then other them. Yeah. Whereas when we meet people and we empathize and, and then take their perspective, well, actually that shifts our views because we see they're not scary. They are just a fellow, they're another human being with the same challenges, the same hopes and the same aspirations. And that's, yeah. I think, the, the huge promise that this field can offer the you know society as a whole, as well as just the individual in the classroom on a Tuesday afternoon. It's it's interesting because I again I mean I think we're we're, we're sort of in agreement. I, I do sometimes I catch myself and I say okay let me let me take the, the sort of the perspective of of someone who's kind of a little bit you know skeptical maybe even a little bit cynical about uh, about this stuff and it's it's kind mm-hmm. of uh, and, and then so how would I you know how would I address my own sort of cynicism and skepticism that this is all kind of a little bit wishy-washy a little bit new age and then i always like to bring in you know examples from sport and i I don't know being being in australia and growing up in australia i'm sure you've been exposed to (laughs) to a lot of sport (laughs) very much part of the uh the the i have i have Australian cousins and and you know they grew up in 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 that sort of environment where you know sport is is important and and I always think you know actually if you look at top athletes and top performing sports teams they take this stuff quite seriously and and maybe that's the answer you know to the to the cynics and skeptics that think that this is all just for kind of you know soft and 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 kind of fuzzy liberal types (laughs) yes oh yeah do you know just the name, the name is the problem is, is a problem. Yeah. So skills, social and emotional learning. I mean, it frames yeah. us, it primes us to think a certain thing, but if we actually say skills for the new economy, well, that changes the argument in some ways. Yeah. Says, well, this isn't just about everyone feeling great. Although when we feel great, guess what? We perform better. So that's important. Actually, our emotional state does matter. And we do need to still advocate for that perspective because there are people that think, you can just suck it up and get it done. Well, actually, when you're doing creative work, that is absolutely not the case. Um, it might be the case when you're doing manual work, uh, that's routine, but when you're doing non-routine cognitive work that's exploratory and innovative and design-oriented, really, that's actually how you feel matters more than ever before. But you're absolutely right. I think the language that we use is really important here. And so yeah. we kind of we've got social-emotional learning. That's because there's a long tradition in history, but... There's also the transversal skills, which are the same kinds of skills or the life skills. So the, the name that when I speak with different audiences, I shift the language that I use. If I speak with educators, I'll use social emotional learning. Um, yeah. if, I, if I speak in a business setting, I will use future capabilities or skills for the new economy because ultimately that's what they want in their organization. A flourishing organization, we haven't spoken about the business world at all, yeah. has a high, a high number of people that are very attuned, right? So the idea of they are emotionally attuned to others. So how do you create a great culture? Well, you do that by having high levels of EQ, high levels of positive energy flows, a highly connected and safe yeah. organization. And you can have a look around the business world and see which companies are ultimately successful. It's the ones that can curate that over time and sustain it. So that's kind of the counter argument I, I use. Is, and I, I always welcome challenge on this because I think when, when we're challenged on our own beliefs, it means we can you know, yeah. be open to, to develop new ones. Yeah. Um, in my view, this is one of the most powerful tools that we have to try to shift the experience and ultimately the outcomes of learners globally. 
And, and some of the work that, that really we've been doing through the Salzburg Global Seminar programs have been focused on this over the, the past few years. And so we've operationalized that by creating a new organization called Karanga. And mm-hmm. it's a call out and welcome. And basically what we're trying to do here is to create a global ecosystem, knowing that the challenges are different depending on where you are, but in yeah. some ways the principles will remain the same. So how can we connect that community? How can we support implementation from system to classroom level? How can we connect the cutting edge research that needs to take place here? And there is really significant research that's taken place, but it's a lot of it's North America based. So yeah. we need to ensure that the distribution that re- is reflecting the global South, for example, is very important. We need to be ensuring there is good research emerging from those places as well to see what works best and what might be next. And so that's, that's kind of one of the key insights is that we still need to advocate. The case still needs to be made, but the way that we do that will differ depending on, on really, can we, funny enough, Stavros, can we empathize and take perspective with the person that we're trying to convince? Yeah. So what's our, what's our own, so what's our own capabilities to yeah. try to bring them into the community? No, I mean, that, that's why I like to sort of, you know, in a, in a sense, take a, Take, try to take that opposite perspective and, and kind of stress test some of these these ideas and, and and again look for you know as you say maybe it's you know it's it's adjusting the language but it's also maybe looking for you know examples that might resonate with you know with 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 a different audience so I mean again you know to kind of bang on a little bit about about sports but if you want to see emotional kind of regulating your emotions in in action just watch the really good tennis players. I mean, the, the ones that can come back, you know, from, you know, you're in the whatever the, the final set, you know, you're, you're facing a couple of match points and, and you can somehow, you know, you dig in, you find, you know, you don't give up, you don't despair, you mm-hmm. dig in, you find that strength and you turn the game around. Now, if that's not emotional mastery, then I don't know what is, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and again, a lot of these guys, if you if you listen to some of their their interviews, it's it is you know there is a lot of kind of mindfulness, even sort of meditation at play there. You know, the ability to kind of detach yourself from you know what's gone in the past and and just focus almost exclusively on the present. Again, yeah, all absolutely. that is, is is social emotional learning, and you know, no one would accuse these guys of being softies. Right? <laughs> That's true. Well, or, it, it was you know for that matter, but. Yeah. No, that's right. Uh, in, in the football teams here in Australia, the same thing. I mean, the, the, you should see that the change in culture is remarkable in the last 20, mm-hmm. 10 years even. Whereas now, you know, with perform, this performance coaching and what we understand about the mind, the brain and the relaxation response, yeah. every time someone, and I used to use this when I would work with students, particularly those that had, had kind of experienced some form of trauma, is you'd show, you know, a video of the fa- their favorite football player about to kick a goal. And that what they would do every single time is they put down the ball in Australian rules football, which might be very foreign to many of your listeners, and then they'll basically take a deep breath in and relax. And they'll see their shoulders lower. They're effectively yeah. activating the parasympathetic nervous system by taking yeah. a deep breath or a number of them. And that enables them to calm down their system so that they can achieve what they want to achieve. Yeah. And so all of these particular tools, we see them in, in lots of different high-performance fields. And so, of course, we want education to be a high-performance field. Mm-hmm. Um, so bringing in these same, same kind of insights, I think, is, is great. And, I mean, the tennis example is a brilliant one. Mind you, tennis, some, t- some tennis players, notably a couple of Australians at the moment. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think we're thinking of, 
<laughs> you're thinking of the same player that that shares part of our uh, cultural heritage. <laughs> heritage, indeed. <laughs> <He's> <laughs> definitely entertaining. But he, but won, he won recently. He won in Washington. Just, just he, he did a couple of days ago. <laughs> He's yeah. So, but you're absolutely right. The idea is how can, how can you persevere? Well, you do that by having a high level of self-regulation. Um, and I mean, the idea of working towards really long-term goals, you have to regulate your way there. Otherwise you'll become distracted, bored or frustrated and you just won't continue. And so sport, athletics, the Olympics are really great examples of how those, why and how those skills matter. But you know, nowadays we have these football teams sitting down meditating for 10 minutes before a game and then going and firing up and having kind of physical contact warm-ups after that. Yeah. I mean, that was unheard of 10 years ago, but I, obviously they know the performance, they, the increase in performance that they get. So that's why they persevere with these kinds of yeah. strategies. Well, also, you know, the, the, you know, again, the, the stakes are much higher now, you know, given the, the amount of, uh, that's, that's being sort of invested in sport and, and it's, you know, it is, it is a big business. And to that extent, there is, you know, there is good that comes out of raising the stakes, if you will, you start then to look for new ways to give, give, you know, give their teams, give their players an edge. Okay, we're coming up to the sort of hour mark. So I'm conscious of, of our time. So let me, let me, uh, start bringing this great conversation to to a close just by asking you what you, you're going to be with us at, at wise 2019 what are you what are you sort of looking to to get out of the uh, the experience of, of being there and, and and what are you sort of hoping to unlearn and relearn yeah it, I think that's it's, it's a wonderful theme if I might say the idea that this is the this if we design things well can be the human age and I like to I'm a very passionate educator. And I'm also always holding my ideas lightly, waiting for them to be changed, evolved, enhanced, improved. So that's what I expect by joining the fantastic, wise, innovative community uh, in November. I'll be talking about some of the, the great work that we're seeing in social emotional learning, some of the work that we're trying to do with Karanga, which is to connect that global ecosystem of education systems and practitioners and policymakers to really support their work, the really important people, you know, actually interacting every single day with, with young people and with learners. And I, I look forward to unlearning a few of the things that I'm sure I've learned across the journey and being challenged and provoked. I, I really like this sentiment by Victor Hugo. You know, there's one thing that's more powerful than all the armies in the world, and that's an idea whose time has come. And mm. I really think this is a moment because of kind of the crises that are also emerging at the same time. This is a moment where if we if we design things right and then we act and get down and kind of do the work we need to do, we can actually make a really significant impact in the world. All the way from that, you know, that year two child that's developing a new capability for them to be able to manage some of the stresses in their life that they'll have, up to how can we redesign an entire ecosystem globally where if someone has a question, they can find the evidence-based answer or they can create new possibilities. Um, I'm a big one for quotes, Davos. I don't know if you've noticed yet, mate. No, no, no. I love this one. I'm um, some of them down. <laughs> well, one I had, and I had this on my wall, my office wall as well, which was uh, live as if you were to die tomorrow, learn as if you were to live forever. Yeah. And that's a wonderful Mahatma Gandhi quote. And that's kind of the, the way I try to live my life and, yeah. and go about my work is to, well, actually regret the things that you've done, not the things you have not. And always use that burning curiosity to try to find out something new about this remarkable world that we inhabit. And hopefully through that learning, 
be able to act to make it better than it is today. No, that's 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 a great uh, it's a great quote, and it's sort of a, a great a great place to kind of sign off. Before we we sort of uh, formally sign off, what what's the best way for people to find out about uh, about you, Luca, and about the work that you do? Uh, I know you've got a website on Twitter, I imagine. Absolutely. Uh, for anything social, emotional, learning related, check out Karanga K A R A N G A dot org. That's our that's this this ecosystem not for profit that we're trying to create, and we have some wonderful wonderful um, advocates and members of that organization already. And to get in touch with me, yeah, just Google Luca Parry. Really, it's L O U K A. P-A-R-R-Y, the Greek first name, the Welsh last name. Of course, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter or at Luca at thelearningfuture.com. Okay, Luca, thank you for your wise words. And I feel like we should we should do this again some sometime, maybe six months to a year's time and, and maybe talk a little bit. I feel we didn't really dig into the mental health element oh, that yeah. came up yeah. a couple of times, but yeah. maybe that, that deserves a kind of a, a conversation in and of, it, of itself. I think it's a wonderful idea, uh, Stavros, I, because there'll be progress between now and then. And some of the work I do is in the masculinity space, for example, right? And so, because of course, men are most likely to commit suicide, right? Uh, intentional self-harm is the better term to use. Yeah. Um, and so and often it's because they haven't got that self-regulation. They, they feel so uptight. They can't express emotionally. So it's, there's a great organization, not-for-profit here in Australia called The Man Cave. What we do is we support boys and young men to develop emotional intelligence and to develop positive mental health, knowing that it's one of the challenges we have in particularly high-income countries because we don't have as many issues with poverty but we have this global epidemic that the WHO is saying, this is the global, this is the biggest global health burden like already, some of them are saying. Yeah. So if you ask the question, it's like what's worth heart disease, cancer, you know, yeah. so mental health is the one that is really shifting societies in, in really negative ways. So yeah, I'd love that, Stavros. Um, and yeah. um, I'm sure hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get a quick handshake in in November at some point. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. A big thank you to Luca for joining us for this episode. Uh, what did you think of the discussion? Please let us know by commenting on Wise social media channels, or you can even tweet me directly at wise underscore CEO. Also, be sure to check the links in the description for more on Luca, social and emotional learning, and his other work. In the meantime, check out more of Wise content at www.wise-qatar.org. See you next time.